The writer Jamaica Kincaid never really got what was so great about being white. I never really understood the concept of whiteness and white spaces and It always looked so unappealing. There wasn't anything about being white that I thought, God, I would love to do that. Jamaica Kincaid is Black. She was born on the island of Antigua. And today, she's one of America's most respected writers on race and colonialism. She's published five novels and many short stories and essays, mostly for The New Yorker, where she was a staff writer for 20 years. Though it's worth mentioning that she found the magazine pretty ridiculous when she started. The New Yorker was full of these, I I later admit I was wrong, but it was full of these white men, um, you know, who wrote five different articles about grain. And they just seemed so old and full of themselves. And I have no idea why I was so arrogant as a young black woman in America in 1973, 74, Last month, I hosted a conversation with Jamaica and the writer Numa Okoro, who writes the weekly FT column, The Art of Life. It was live at the FT Weekend Festival in London. And it was really interesting to hear two Black women writers reflect on their journeys, which were similar in some ways, but different in many others, and a few decades apart. So I'm always trying to get people to think about how do we live our lives. That's, that's all I'm doing. It's how do we live our lives and how do we do it with intention and how do we do it, recognizing that we all have responsibilities to ourselves, but also to each other. Today, we spend the whole episode at the FT Weekend Festival. First, we bring you my conversation with Jamaica and Dinuma, and then we hear from you. We had a table set up in the middle of the action, and we were chatting with people all day from friends of the podcast like Esther Perel to listeners who stopped by. You all shared some incredible cultural lessons, cultural recommendations, and cultural obsessions. This is FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. So we're at the FT Weekend Festival. It's early September on Hampstead Heath. The sun is shining. Nearly 3,000 people are walking around, watching panels, drinking Aperol spritzes. And I've got two writers that I really admire on stage with me. Jamaica Kincaid, who's a legend, really. Her work has been compared to Toni Morrison and Virginia Woolf. And Inuma Okoro, a brilliant writer and thinker and my colleague. So both of you write fiction and nonfiction. Both of you have very strong, recognizable writing voices. So I'd love to start by just introducing the audience to your stories, how you became the writers that you are, how you started to think of yourself as a writer. So Jamaica, when you were young, growing up in Antigua, you were a voracious reader, right? Yes, that's true. Yes. Could you tell us about those early years, like what you were drawn to intellectually, what made you start to want to write? Uh, My mother was a a reader, um, though I didn't know what that meant, but except it meant she didn't pay attention to me. And uh, so I would bother her. And she thought that if she taught me to read, I would leave her alone. And uh, she taught me to read um, from a book. She was reading a biography of Louis Pasteur, And um, I think it must have registered because uh, she 
told me about the relationship between him and my milk, a boy she boiled and my milk and it was pasteurized and so on. So I began to read, but I still bothered her. And uh, she sent me to school and I could just read anything. Eventually, I got to thinking that everything I read I had written myself and I would <laughs> I would pretend I, I had written it. And so writing and reading became very collapsed right. uh, in my mind. Right. Um, Inuma, you grew up in four countries on three continents. I read that you used to pour over Greek mythology in the encyclopedia. Can you tell us about your childhood relationship with words and writing and, and reading? Oh, gosh, I can't even tell you. I don't know. I've always been in love with words and with storytelling. Words when I could, even before I could read them, but also when I could read them. And yes, I would pour over the encyclopedia and I loved Greek mythology. I was raised in the Catholic Church. And so I also loved the aesthetics. I didn't necessarily like going to church as a child. But once there, I was always in awe of the aesthetics of the church and of the stories I heard. And so I I feel as I've always had this sort of fascination with the otherworldly. And I think storytelling and um, reading were a way of me sort of entering that mysterious space that we're, that I inhabited. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine not reading. And so as far as writing, when writing, I think as soon as I learned to write, writing became a way that I could think about how to, A, to understand the world and think about my own place in it. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so writing has just always been a way that I try to make sense of things. Um, in my interior life and in the exterior world as well. Inuma and Jamaica have a few things in common. Both came to the U.S. in their late teens, a pivotal time. Inuma was born in New York, but she grew up in Nigeria and Cote d'Ivoire in the U.K. And in both cases, their work makes you question the way things are, though their subject matter is usually pretty different. Jamaica's writing is biting and fearless. She points out realities in the world around us that a lot of times we'd rather not see. Enuma's is more focused on our private, internal lives. Her columns in the FT explore things like pleasure and grief and anger. And often she explores them through their depictions in art. Jamaica, you moved to America to nanny for a family. I was was sent away by my family to be a servant in a household and... uh, uh, to take care of children. And could you tell me about sort of those first, I don't know, 10, 15 years in New York, um, that sort of oh. building your career at the New Yorker? What um, was it like to kind of find your voice as a writer? Uh, <laughs> I didn't know there were such things as careers. Um, a lot of things you, your progress in the world just sounds so wonderful uh, uh, to me. Um, I was sent away because my parents had too many children that they couldn't afford. And so being the eldest, I was sent away to help support them. And I was very resentful of it. And uh, after a while, uh, stopped sending my salary home and would shop at very expensive stores. I was the best dressed nanny you ever saw. Um, I went to college, dropped out, decided I wanted to be a writer because uh, people who knew me as a child are not surprised that I became a writer because I was always pretending um, I was writing. That, you, you mean you would say, like, this book is actually by me? Yes. And the, so I wouldn't say it, but it was clear that 
I thought I had written it. Um, and um, I was interested in um, your seeing yourself in the world. I, I never thought of seeing myself as, as I am. For instance, I was punished a lot because I was very disruptive in school. And I think I was about nine, ten. I was given a copy of um, Jane Eyre to read uh, and in a corner. That was my punishment and not recess. And uh, I read it and pretended I was Charlotte Bronte. And it never occurred to me that neither Charlotte Bronte nor Jane Eyre looked like me. I just felt I was them. Uh, Racial identity uh, didn't come into my imagination until I went to America, uh, because where I come from, everyone is black. So if you say, oh, the black guy, you'd say, which one? Because <laughs> Jamaica, what was it like? You know, it was the 70s being a woman and a black woman in an organization that was mostly white, mostly men. What was it like? I mean, you said a lot of people didn't agree with you or were hostile and then it didn't bother you? Well, in the early days of go, of being in New York, um, a friend, a New Yorker writer took me to meet the editor, William Sean, and um, he said, well, she could give it a try. It didn't look as if I could possibly write for them. And I did uh, write something about the West Indian Day Carnival and I made notes and I gave it to him thinking he would rewrite, have someone rewrite it. Well, it appeared just the way I had written it. And I looked at it and I said, of course, that is my voice. And uh, from there, I just um, started to to write. But um, there were no black people at the New Yorker. And uh, in in the world of literary New York then, there were no uh, black people. But America, everybody tries to be white. But I'd been brought up in a British colony in which, uh, in those days, only certain people were white. Um, And so when I came to America and I met all these white people, there were people from Lebanon, Poland, Spain, and they said they were white. And I just thought, no, you're not. (laughs) And I just ignored them. So I have my distortion of race. Um, to, I have to thank the English people. <laughs> um, Lila, I would yes, like to say about the, the racialized identity. Yes. The funny thing is when I, when I speak of seeing myself in the world, I didn't mean through race, mm. but it was more seeing myself as this child who had lived in these different cultural spaces and had a struggle to understand what home meant as a person in the world, I was made up of many places and many cultures. I had my Nigerian parents telling me something and then my English boarding school experience and then coming to America for university and think, realizing, oh, I'm supposed to feel a certain way because I'm black. What does that even mean? Yes. You know, I, so, it was, um, so for me, identity and place and location initially was not about blackness. It was about culture. And mm. um, America is a very distinct place. Yeah. So how could you tell me about how you found your writer's voice or how you sort of. I don't know. You I'm still were finding my writer's voice. Even. Yeah, <laughs> I am. Um, or in the sense that I've, I've always written. Yeah. You know, even before I published anything, I've I have folders still in storage of just stuff I wrote for myself. I never writing as a child, a young adult. I never thought I was going to be a writer. I sort of came into writing 
um, as a vocation because I was called into it, right? Mm. Because someone said, oh, we'd love you to. Would you have ever thought about writing a book? And I said, are you kidding me? It was one of those things I just, it was so natural to who I was. And I just wasn't thinking about it as, oh, this is something you could do for life. And I also have Nigerian parents. So writing or going into the arts was not one of the options that was <laughs> offered to me as a, as a child, yeah. as a young adult. So finding my voice as a writer was a lot of... Um, risk-taking and sort of just putting things out there. But I still also believe and hope that as I continue to learn and experience and live life, I may have a strong writing voice now, but I hope in 20 years I sound different. Mm-hmm. What, I'm, what I'm writing right now, I may still sound recognizable, but I hope I've had experiences and that I'm even more firmly rooted in my own self. I'm pretty rooted right now, <laughs> but there's always room to be more rooted, I think, as a woman in the world. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. an answer. Interesting. What do yeah. you think is the interesting question or conversation that we should or could be having about women writing in the world, as is the name of this panel? Oh, that's so interesting. I feel like it's, it's, a, it's an ongoing conversation. It's not new. I'm in awe of women, to be honest. I think that women are the backbone of so much. <laughs> and I think women sort of, so much of the work behind the scenes are because women's hands are involved. And when I think of, a, of women writing, and I think of the interior, interior lives of women, I think for so long historically, our voices and our interior lives have not been seen as important or valuable for everyone. Maybe they're valuable for a group of women coming together to have a book club or... Um, and I, I don't, I, I did not, I don't set out in any sort of intentional way to be, I'm going to speak on the, you know, for women. I just feel my voice is important. (laughs) And I know that there are other women's voices that I love that I also feel are important. And it, it, it always frustrates me when there, I experience the microaggressions of being a woman with an active mind. And also when I see sort of the larger, on the larger landscape and, and think about the history of how women's voices have been permitted or not permitted in certain spaces, not just in literature, everywhere, in boardrooms. In, I mean, it's everywhere. So I don't, I don't set out to be identified. It's not like I want my bio to read Enuma, the woman writer, but it is, it is as much a part of who I am as being a woman born to Nigerian parents, raised in X, Y, and Z countries. Those are all particularities of my experience that I bring to how I live in the world. And so just as much as I wouldn't want anyone to tell me, oh, I don't even see you as Black. Well, I wish you would see me as Black because that's a part of who I am. So it's the same thing with with being a woman. And I've just learned so much from, from other women writers. And I just think our minds and our interior lives are really valuable to the world. Jamaica, how about you? How do you think about your identity, uh, about... Oh gosh, so so many things you you said. Um, I uh, totally agree, agree with, but uh, not but. And uh, I so love conjunctions. Um, complicated because when you speak of women, I think you're right. But then in America, you know, you can almost say the foundations of white supremacy is uh, fueled by white women. There's, you said, it is a different conversation and yet not, but I admire your um, clarity to speak so of women. I I can't, I see uh, a lot of layers of 
things and and um I voted for instance reluctantly for Hillary Clinton because who couldn't given her opponent but I've never really forgiven her for not leaving that stupid man she was married to um what do you think is the interesting question Jamaica mm-hmm. to ask about about being women about gender about yeah. <sighs> you know women i mean for instance i would start with my mother who taught me to read and so on but i often describe my mother as um cronus who gave birth to us you are interested in greek mythology who gave birth to us in the morning and ate us at night every day <laughs> so that would be my beginning with women and uh, but on the other hand uh, my uh, you know experience some of the most wonderful supportive people have been women and when i got to the new yorker all the women who were white and had gone to radcliffe and uh, all these high-toned schools, um, they were secretaries and uh, receptionists and so on, and um, not writers. And they would say to me, more than one would say to me, well, how did you get your job? And I would say, well, I met George, and and they'd say, no, 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 how did you get your job? And it was really a problem. So finally, I said to George, these women keep asking me how I got my job. And he said, oh, just tell them your father owns the magazine. And when I did, they stopped. <laughs> but it's my age. I think you have more, your experience with uh, women it's, is more um, cohesive uh, uh, than mine. Women are complicated. Well, I, <laughs> so, uh, no, but, and, I, and I think to raise this is, is really important because I, when I speak of the need to hear women's voices because I do think it is important collectively. But to enter that conversation of how do women or how don't women support each other, and then to enter the other conversation of Black women and Black women intellectual property and mm-hmm. white women is a whole other conversation. And I could I could talk to you about that for an hour. Oh, or, a year. <laughs> or a year. Women are not all supportive of each other. And that's not the, the point I'm making. The point I'm making is I think women's voices are important. And women's interior lives are important. And the world has not always held that up. It's another conversation to me to talk about what women do to one another mm-hmm. and to talk about the history of black women and white women. That's, that's yeah, we could have a series of panels, right? You could right. teach a course on. <laughs> yeah. um, but yeah. I do think even to bring up the complications and to name them in this kind of conversation is, is really important to do, Jamaica. This was a fascinating conversation and Jamaica and Enuma had a lot more to share. So we've put this full conversation on YouTube and I've linked to it in the show notes. I've also linked to an excellent profile of Jamaica that was published in FT Weekend and a few of my favorite essays by both writers. The day of the festival was an endless, happy flow of people old friends, past guests of the podcast, new listeners. It was really fun. And it was partially so fun because in the weeks before, we asked you to stop by, say hi, and share your cultural recommendations with us in person. And you did. My producer, Lulu Smith, and I pulled out our recorders and got dozens of thoughtful insights from you on tape. We found out what you love and what you'd like to learn. Here are a select few. Okay, so we're with 
the wonderful Jamaica Kincaid. We were just on a panel together, and she's going to give us one cultural recommendation in the form of a book. Uh, Mahogany, The Course of Luxury in Early America. That's what I'm reading. Okay. And could you tell us a little bit about what you love about it? Oh, uh, what I love about it is uh, that it adds again to my knowledge of uh, what the so-called New World was like, uh, what Europeans met when they went to the West Indies um, or, or South America and how they immediately described it as paradise and immediately destroyed it. Right. Thank you, Jamaica. Thank you. Right now, the yeah. cultural recommendation is for the Londoners to go see Cabaret. That's therapist Esther Perel. You might know her from her podcasts, Where Do We Begin and How's Work. To see Cabaret. Why? Because it is excellent theater, one of a kind. Mm -hmm. Because it is so timely. Right. Because the acting is transcendent. Mm. And I I hadn't seen it in so long, and I was like, oh, and because they modernized it. They they gave it a new twist. It is... exquisite choreography. It almost feels like the ensemble is better than the acting itself, but that's my cultural recommendation. My name is Errol McElhenry. That's Errol from our sound design episode. It's an allegorical question, but I think people should be thinking about freedom, uh, thinking about uh, freedom of expression, thinking about uh, learning new things. and redeploying what they already know. And I think more people pursuing freedom, we have more people that are free. Uh, That's what I'd like people to to ponder. My name is Lisa Hench, and I'm a doctor living in Geneva. And as I am a palliative care specialist, I would say death. Because people tend to live like they're going to live forever. And I find that people who do think about death and talk about death and prepare what it is that they want in their last period of life actually die better. Really? Yeah, Yeah. and more peacefully. So I'm Suzette, I'm from London, and I love the question, if you could have the podcast cover something in depth, what would it be? Mm -hmm. And I think I would look at friendship, because it's something that so often we take for granted, Mm -hmm. and yet so many people struggle with it in so many different ways, whether it's creating new friendships in the workplace, or having friendships while maintaining a relationship, Mm -hmm. what does friendship look like? There are so many different nuances. What was your name? Bill, Bill Schwartz. I'm from London. I I retired from teaching last year. I've just read the biography of Claude McKay, a Harlem Renaissance black guy in the 30s who came to Britain in the First World War. Then he he became a Bolshevik and then a Catholic, and he wrote these wonderful, beautiful novels about black seamen in Marseille which are erotic and funny and political. I'm Andrew. Uh, I'm from Paisley in Scotland. I always think cultural recommendations, because uh, I'm Scottish as well, music in Glasgow is really good, and I would always say you should go up for a trip and go for a few days and go see some of the bands and some of the local venues. I think that's always like a massive thing. There's a place called Nice and Sleazy's. It's been going for quite a while. And the, it has a barn and the venue's in the basement. There's one next door called Broadcast as well, so they're pretty good. My name is Chris and I'm, I'm Greek and I live in London. What is one thing that you wish that you could learn instantly? I, I don't know that it's something that I could learn, period. Right. 
but I'd be very interested to learn how to speak dog. Dog. Yeah. Do you know how many people so have said languages? Really? Dog. Yeah. No one has said dog. Yeah. I guess the, 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 the thing is that in the same way as we assume things about people, we assume things from, oh yeah, in terms of the communication that we have with our dogs. It would be quite interesting Right. To see if you're totally wrong, totally or if you know where, where you actually, yeah. you know, you think that you're play, you're playing a game, you know, that, that your dog likes chasing the ball, but the dog is just like, you know, screw you, you know, I just want to sit here chewing the ball, quit throwing it already. Yeah, like leave me alone. Good answer. Bravo, Such a good answer. Good answer. Thanks to everyone who stopped by. We had a really good time, and we always love hearing from you. So today, we're putting out a listener call-out. We would like to challenge you to challenge us. So, okay, here is the challenge. The question is, what is one thing that you think most people would think is boring, but we could make interesting on the podcast? It can be anything. It can be a philosophical concept. It can be an obscure piece of music, a scientific theory. I would love to hear some historical gossip. We're open. All we need from you is a topic that you want us to cover that seems kind of niche, and we'll make it great. So we've put a link in the show notes. All you have to do is tap it, and it'll bring you to a website where you can leave us a message from whatever device you're on. It's really easy. And it's possible that we'll even play that message on the show. Don't overthink it. Just get in there. We can't wait to hear them. That's the show this week. Thank you for being such a great audience and for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. If you think we had too good a time at the festival, don't worry, we spoke to some detractors too. Podcasts are a load of hype. They have to sex them up and hype them and hype and hype. And you know, it's boring. I'd rather have the economist that reads the facts what I want. If you'd like to say hi in other ways, we love hearing from you. You can email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. The show is on Twitter at ftweekendpod. And I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Raff. You can keep up with these callouts and cultural conversations that feed into the show on my Instagram. Links to everything mentioned today are in the show notes, alongside a link to the best offers we have available on a subscription to the FT. They're really good. Those offers are at ft.com slash weekend podcast. You can also watch all the panels from the FT Weekend Festival on demand if you couldn't be there. I've linked to that too with a special discount code. I am Lila Raptopoulos, and here's my exceptional team. Katya Kamkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith is our producer. Molly Nugent is our contributing producer. Our sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sam Javinko with original music by Metaphor Music. Topher Forges is our executive producer. And special thanks go, as always, to Cheryl Brumley. Have a lovely weekend, and we'll find each other again next week. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, 
and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.